Hey everybody, this is Jack Blades from Night Ranger, Damn Yankees, and Shaw Blades. You're listening to your morning coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Hypebot, oops, 100,000 tracks are not uploaded to Spotify, Apple, and Amazon Music Daily. From PBS, how streaming platforms are changing the way we listen to music. From Music Think Tank, everyone hurts. The problem with fixing streaming. From Music Week, Deezer, CEO, Hiranimo Falguera. Five big ideas for the future of streaming. All right, Jay, we are ready. <laughs> After several takes of the intro <laughs> that I screwed up, we are ready to jump into it. So we are glad you're here. Let's push the button right about now and get going. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. On the air. On the air. On the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. the Burt Bacharach book and that was his favorite version of a song that he had written that of course is Aretha Franklin oh my goodness and what a passing what a giant of the music industry that we yeah. lost just this last week rest in peace believe. wow 94 a pretty good run though a pretty good run and you'd be hard-pressed to find you know in the annals of, of uh, chart history anyone who has that big of an impact on songwriting, on popular hits, and man, oh man, oh man, he could crank them out. Yeah, he sure could. Do you remember he had that cameo in uh, Austin Powers? Yes, I And it do. was absolutely amazing. 
And I, I was so lucky I got to see him just before COVID. Uh, he did, he, he had periodically tour and, and perform, <clears throat> but I saw him play over at UCLA. And then I saw him play down in Costa Mesa around the same time. And uh, he was 90 at that point. And my goodness, he still had it. And uh, it was so fun to see him. I'm so happy that I did. And wow, I mean, just, you know, like, like for many, like you and I were speaking before that we, uh, we hit record, uh, these are the soundtracks, depending on your age, these were the soundtracks of your childhood. And certainly my parents had all his albums. Mine too. Sure. Albums. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So, uh, yeah. End of an era. All right. Uh, end of an era. End of an era. So, uh, you know, a lot of stuff to talk about today and you've been busy. You just got back from Nashville. Had a yeah. Good time. I love Nashville. I need to get out there more often. This was a really quick trip. Um, we had some meetings with Apple Music and Symphonic Distribution. Love those guys. Um, had a chance to meet with a couple of uh, clients while we were there. You know, last week we played uh, Kendall Inskeep. She released uh, Friends That Kiss. Um, we had a wonderful uh, breakfast with her and um, got to see our friend and client, Brett James. Um, I was telling you that I got to pop by Third Man um, mm-hmm. and just just really quickly between meetings just to kind of see the the gift shop there and, and that, uh, that booth where you can record, uh, like direct onto vinyl. And there was actually two people there doing that while we were there. And it was just really oh, fun. Neat. I don't know how many of those machines are still around, but I can't imagine there's very many. And it was, it was really fun to watch that. Yeah. This is something that, so of course, third man is, is Jack White's label, um, and company. Um, and yeah, he's, he's, he is certainly a collector of kind of vintage things. And if you have a pressing plant, of course you have lots of vintage things because the, the process of creating vinyl is in many ways, uh, very steampunky and, you know, yeah. lots of old machinery oh, yeah. and cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, but this thing is, yeah, it was, a, it's a, it's a, rec- it's a record booth, uh, that it, it was like a, like a, a vending machine thing that existed, I think in the 40s or 50s and he yeah. has renovated that and it must be cool it must be a neat hang i mean it's well, just a neat yeah it's place it was really cool i highly recommend it if you're uh, you're in nashville also um this last friday um the soundtrack for uh, marvel's new film moon girl and the devil dinosaur uh came out and the reason i bring it up is because i'm, I'm a huge jellyfish fan you know, I, I just I love the the yes, work that are. they did. And yeah, and I got to you know uh, work with the Licorice Quartet, which is three of the four members of the second version of uh, Jellyfish. Anyway, lead singer Andy Sturmer um, has a song on this soundtrack called "Go Big," and it's super cool. And it was really great to you know. It's like an old friend from the past to hear that voice again. Absolutely. Cool. Boy, and it is the past. Those Jellyfish records came out thirty years ago. My I goodness. know, right? It's like it. it yeah, time flies. Where does the time go? Well, and that was one of the bands that you and I bonded over when we first That's right. met. You know, gigantic, be- uh, gigantic jellyfish fans. Yeah, and you and nice I got to, to work with the- Albie Galutin, who we did. produced jellyfish. So absolutely, and we would we were we would always ask him questions. <laughs> about the productions of those records well you know he was involved you know producing saturday night fever and you know Mm -hmm. eric clapton and barbara streisand and many others and i was more impressed i'm like tell me about jellyfish what was that (laughs) (laughs) what was that like and uh well there were about four of us in the building that were all jellyfish fans and we would just torture him with all the questions like how did you get that sound (laughs) that's a cool panning effect you know that's right all these questions about it but uh, yeah i need to hear him out there in the world and he's been doing a 
lot of kind of behind the scenes uh, compositions and things like that. Yeah, uh, a lot this, of this film, his animation, uh, scoring, and music, and uh, he's been very successful at it. Um, before we jump in, I wanted to mention um, I'm about halfway through Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act, A Way of Being. And I know that, I mean, you were hired by the man, you worked with the man, and I'd love to hear about that. I just wanted to tell you that so far, I just love this book. It's unlike any book I've ever read. It's like he carried it around a notebook all of his life, and anytime he had some kind of epiphany or thought about creativity, he would jot it down. And it's like drinking from a fire hose of all of these great little tidbits. Um, I actually bought the book for a client. Um, I just, I so far it's just been inspiring. Yeah, I got to check it out. I certainly have seen that it exists, but I haven't bought it yet. Uh, and I will, I will pick it up. And he, he was a, you know, I worked for the label, of course, and you know, unlike a lot of people, Rick would rarely come into the office. <laughs> <laughs> we would go to his house periodically to show him things and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, yeah, he is he is a wildly creative person and he's so good at putting people together, at helping mm-hmm. people kind of suss out their creativity and kind of presenting different perspectives. And But also, I mean, in, in many ways, he's kind of like a therapist, I think, for artists in that, you know, he kind of lets them figure stuff out, but he presents things to them to consider basically not yeah. and and he's he's not forceful in any way you know he, he's he's yeah. really pretty laid back guy yeah um, he seems like a hippie dude you know pretty chill he is i saw he him is. do that uh series uh documentary series with paul mccartney not that long ago oh yeah that and was wonderful. beautifully shot in black and white and they were sitting at the board so they could take certain songs and kind of you know maybe play the bass line from it and maybe kind of dissect it and i just found it uh very cool and and it's so cool that you you were hired by the man i was yeah yeah and i i met him when i was at uh so when i was at warner brothers i was an assistant to one of the senior executives there and this was when the transition because remember uh uh his label deaf american was distributed by geffen and then when geffen went to with, with the purchase of mca he was kind of a free agent and so he came over to to the warner music family and so I met him in that capacity, and then they were looking for a product manager, and I went up to his house, and we, we went for a ride in his Rolls Royce and had lunch. As one does. We just talked about music. I don't recall any really specific questions about the job, and, and, and we, were at, we were at lunch, and, <laughs> and uh, Andrew Dice Clay, who was on the label at the time also, was at the same restaurant, and so... He came over to the table and he had a cassette of some band, some friend's band he, he wanted Rick to listen to. So me and Rick and Andrew Dice Clay, we got into Rick's Rolls Royce and <laughs> popped in the cassette and we were listening to this track of a friend of his. It was a very surreal moment. But Wow. Um, but but yeah, he he uh yeah, he's a super creative guy. He definitely thinks outside of the box and um, yeah, it was a fun place to work. Uh, well, I highly recommend the book work. for those that like uh, creativity. If you're an artist, or well, you don't even have to be an artist. And he explains in the book that a creator uh, doesn't have to be a uh, an artist. If you have a beautiful garden, or if you're um, making uh, meals, 
you're creating something. You're making something right. that wasn't there before and you are a creator. So I highly recommend that. And the last thing I want to touch on really quickly is I'm going out in a couple of weeks to the Innings Festival in Tempe, oh, Arizona. Yeah. Um, yeah. Day one has Green Day, Weezer, Black Crows, Offspring, you know, many, many others, right? Uh, day two is Eddie Vedder's uh, headlining it. Uh, there's Marcus Mumfum, Mumford. It's easy for you to say. It's easy for you to say. <laughs> exactly. The re- revivalist, Mount Joy, Head and Heart. And uh, I'm pretty excited because um, I get to see the um, uh, Bronson Arroyo and the 04. You may know mm-hmm. Bronson Arroyo from you know being a, a pitcher in Major League Baseball, uh, most notably probably the Cincinnati Reds. But uh, he's a friend and a client, and he's got this all-star band, and they're they're world class, and uh, I can't wait to uh, see them live. So that's uh, coming up in a couple of weeks in Tempe, Arizona. That will be fun. By the way, I forgot to mention we were talking about the passing of Burt Bacharach. Uh, Jem Oswald in Variety did a fantastic article um, on just you know the the uh, the genius of Burt Bacharach and mm. twelve songs. So forgot to forgot to mention that I had it uh, queued up here. So uh, yeah, no, good job, I, I'm, Jim. I, as always, Jim is uh, the best, and uh, that that doesn't surprise me. But it's I I love it so good. So yes. And by the way, Jay, whenever we do this show every week, we do it. We stand on the shoulders of giants. We sure do. Say. We have wonderful sponsors, and I do want to mention that the Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Banzoogle. We want to take this time to congratulate Banzoogle members for surpassing $100 million in commission-free sales of music, merch, and tickets through their website. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in just minutes. All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, mailing List tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles and live support for their mu- from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Prices start at just eight dollars twenty-nine cents a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can jump over to Bandzoogle.com, try it free for thirty days, and use the promo code Morning Coffee, all one word, to get fifteen percent off the first year of any subscription that's banzoogle.com promo code morning coffee yeah by the way we had dave cool yeah that's his real name dave cool mm. from banzoogle on the music biz weekly uh podcast this last week um check that out um websites are not what they used to be there's been this evolution in what yes. they do and what they don't do and how easy it is to create one and what functionality you need so anyway check that out um our uh, podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Hypod. Uh, Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank, and we're going to cover one of those stories today. They're both published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. You betcha. Bands in Town, over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists can access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. And finally, we are sponsored by our friends over at the Music Business Association. 
and they put on the Music Biz Conference, which is coming up. Uh, actually, they've been doing it for more than six decades, and it's been the point of origin for inspiration and collaboration in the music business. Uh, so join us in Nashville, May 15th through the 18th, and check out their website because they just posted their uh, schedule. So you can see, you know, they have some really cool DSP workshops the first day, first, uh, and I think some on the second day. You know, they've got their uh, favorites like Metadata, Metadata Summit, some of those things. So check out the Music Business Association Conference, the Music Biz Conference. Indeed. So big thanks to the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Boy, we really, really, really appreciate your participation. Yes, and every week I get to hang out with the Honorable Jay Gilbert. He is a music industry consultant. He is the curator of the wonderful weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and a little company called Fox Home Entertainment. Thank you, brother. And this uh, gentleman across from me, Mike Etchard, is a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, um, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. Way back in the day. For yes, sir. God. Hey, let's let's jump into the stories, Jay. But we've covered, we've talked about this particular sort of thing quite a bit over the last year, to, to say the least. Uh, this is this next story is from Hypebot. Oops. 100,000 tracks are not uploaded to Spotify, Apple, and Amazon Music Daily. So this is kind of like a tennis ball that's going back and forth and back and right. forth. Yeah, we've been having this conversation partially because these numbers get thrown around. And I'm not saying that they're not accurate, but let's talk about what they mean. Um there are 100,000 tracks uploaded on average every day if you include SoundCloud. But, yes. you know, SoundCloud, you know, if you look at, say, Spotify, and there may be 100 million tracks, Spotify is like 350 million because the barrier to entry is so low. Um, it's, it's very easy to put your music up on SoundCloud. So I think what Glenn's doing here is a smart thing to do, and he's really looking at, well, let's take Spotify and see how many tracks are uploaded, you know, uh, each week on average from, from Spotify. And that number is closer to half that, you know, it's closer to around 50,000. Um, and we're also looking at what they call ISRCs and an ISRC code is a unique identifier on, on the master side. There's the ISWC on the uh, publishing side. And what that means is each version of a song has a unique ISRC code. And the reason I even mention that is, you know, a lot of songs today are released in multiple versions. And there may be anywhere from four to 10 ISRC codes uh, for one song. So you kind of have to take that uh, with a grain of salt, but it's still a lot of music being uploaded every week. It is. And the article states, you know, so that 100,000 that, that everybody has kind of uh, glommed onto over the last few months, if not last year or so, uh, it comes from a few places. So the first place is what Glenn in his article mentions as the pandemic bounce. And he said, first, the number of tracks added to streaming services went way up during the pandemic when professional musicians had more time to write and record. And the average Joe and Judy 
had nothing better to do than to crank out <laughs> tunes on their laptops. So, as he said, CD Baby, TuneCore, DistroKid, and the like must have been very, very happy during that period. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they refer to his, uh, his weekly email that we talk about all the time, uh, the ledger, and that's mm-hmm. where this came from. And I love that Glenn kind of breaks it down by year, you know? Spotify's catalog grew from 50 million at the end of 2019, doubled that to 100 million at the end of 2022. And that's according to Spotify's annual reports. Uh, Those reports say that the number of tracks uh, millions of people around the world have access to has recently ranged from 27,000 per day in 2019 to 55,000 per day in 2020. Of course, you're talking about the lockdown and then slipping a little bit to 33,000 per day the following year in 2021. And then for 2022, right around 49,000, right? So it has varied um, by year, um, to your point, you know, with the pandemic, uh, with the lockdown. And, but that number, according to Spotify, is on average about 49,000 a day, not a hundred thousand. Yeah. You know, and we've, we've talked over the time and we're going to, another story we're going to talk about is kind of in a similar vein. Um, You know, it's all kind of under this, the heading or the umbrella really of this notion of the democratization of music. And, you know, we've talked about this as well in the past where, you know, when we were musicians starting out before we even got in the business, you know, there was just only one way really to get your music out and to get it in record stores, and that was to be on a label. Well, guess what? All of those barriers to entry are down, and the democratization of music production has also happened. And so now we've got this situation where sometimes be, you know, what you wish for may may not be that great. And so now you're competing with all of this just fire hose of music that is out there and coming out. And it makes it such a challenge to be an artist right now. It's wonderful, but it's also challenging. It is. Like, how do you rise above that, especially on SoundCloud? Because, you know, in the last year, they've added 45 million tracks, which is an average of 123,000 per day. And that's according to numbers that Glenn found in the in a company uh, press release. So we just wanted to shine a little bit of a light on these numbers. Um, but the bottom line is there's a lot of music being uploaded uh, every week. And on average, it looks like for most of the DSPs, that number is closer to 50,000 than 100,000. But, you know, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> you know, before it gets to that number. Um, right. And, uh, you know, it, it highlights the point that today you need to rise above that noise and there are ways of, of doing that. You know, we talk all the time about, you know, when we first meet with say an artist or an artist manager, not only about setting goals, but then like, well, what is the narrative? What is special? Why should anyone care about this? Mm-hmm. You know, what is the, uh, the audience that you're looking to either ignite or reignite or reach. And you start putting these things together. And if you have planning, um, we've seen it. You can rise above the noise. Um, but with things like TikTok, where you're constantly being hit with, you know, new music and new dances and new this and new that, it's, it's challenging to not only get someone's attention, but to keep it. Yeah. Well, no, absolutely. Well, and you have to have patience. You know, it's it's it it takes a much longer time, generally speaking, to 
to break artists and, and you have to kind of stick with the plan and it's hard to have that conversation with artists sometimes, isn't it? You, yeah. you more than anybody know that, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of, by the way, and when we talk about these, these numbers of tracks and this just kind of onslaught of, of things being added, no matter what the number is, it also makes me think about just the data storage needs of these companies. My God, SoundCloud must just have an unbelievable amount of, of servers, of storage yeah. needs, servers around the world and how they handle all, all of that just data management. That must be stunning, yeah. stunningly expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's and crazy. one of the conversations we have a lot is on metadata and I won't go down that rabbit hole, but I can tell you that most distributors, um, they have different fields in the feed that they um, push to digital service providers and some have sidemen, some don't, you know, some have publishing, some don't. Um, it's, it's a mess out there when it comes to metadata and there's some companies that are trying to clean all of that up. Um, but it's crazy to me that you can't necessarily go on your DSP of choice and type in, you know, a, like Rick Rubin or Chris Lord Algae or whoever it is. Mm-hmm and see everything that they've worked on or Christian McBride, show me every recording that he's played bass on, you know, things like that. We're, we're so far behind, uh, in that. And when I was, uh, uh, looking through Apple music the other day, they've got a lot of really cool, like playlists based on engineers and producers Mm -hmm. and musicians and songwriters. And I I love that trend and I, I hope we see more of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So because, you know, we, of course, we also grew up in an era of, of vinyl, you know, and that's the first thing you would do. You'd put that, you know, is a much more active experience than passive and you yes. put that first record on and then, then you sit down and then you look at that album jacket and you <laughs> look at the credits and, you know, that's always the, for, for being a music fan, that's always kind of, you start noticing that, and and we we actually that's part of the uh, the documentary on the immediate family that we got to see a screening of, which is essentially kind of part two of the Wrecking Crew. It's talking about these session people that started playing on the '70s, and they started getting noted in the in the liner notes. That's that right. They were playing. They played piano or they played drums on this, and so we came up in that era of yeah. looking at that. Then that's why we knew those names because yeah. of that. It wasn't called metadata then. It was called album credits. <laughs> jacket credits but that's how we learned about all these people early on in yeah. our music listening experience yeah so absolutely it's, it's so important it is so important yeah so, yeah all right jay how about the next one from pbs how streaming platforms are changing the way we listen to music yeah this is an interview um with ann powers and uh Um, I thought it was really interesting. Um, The way they kind of kick it off is that they were talking about several of the nominees from this year's Grammy Awards rose to fame and popularity on streaming platforms like Spotify, YouTube, and also TikTok. And so Ann Powers, you know, she's a critic, a correspondent for uh, NPR Music. Um, She was interviewed um, by Stephanie Tsai, and she touched on some things that this is kind of a theme with our uh, our episode this week. Um, we're going to go into it in the next couple of stories too, which is how do you quote unquote fix streaming? Yeah, that is a big one, isn't it? And and then you know the hardest part of that is okay, what are the issues concerning streaming that we want to fix, <laughs> and and then how do you fix that? And boy, 
it is a long, long, long conversation, and Anne has some interesting thoughts, but yeah. she also is, you know, importantly talking about, you know, kind of some of these developing artists, specifically jazz artists, and you spent a lot of time working in the jazz world over there at Mac Avenue, yeah. and, you know, you think it's hard for kind of pop, rock, hip-hop, you know, R&B type artists, but boy, the jazz artists... It can be re- a challenge, and that's a, it, it's a, it's almost a different business model, to be honest. It like is. The, 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 it, it's it's way different. They make money sp- exclusively at playing live. Yeah, live the, is very very important to uh, mm-hmm. jazz artists, and most of the jazz artists and managers that I still speak with, you know, accolades are very important to them awards and playing, you know, the village Vanguard or, you know, being in jazz times, downbeat jazz is those types of things. Um, and in this piece, they talk about Samara joy, which, you know, if you didn't see the uh, Grammys the other night, just almost out of nowhere, Samara won best new artist and she won best Mm -hmm. jazz vocal album for uh, linger a while. And, uh, you know, congratulations uh, to her. And, and the other thing is, um, that, people at DSPs um, explain to me all the time is that jazz is not really a genre that fits well in playlists. It's one that it's more of an album format. And when you're taking Mm -hmm. bite-sized chunks off of some of these records and putting them just because uh, this is one that's based on piano or this is one that's based on vocal, sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't. And Power says the real place where streaming platforms are changing the game for artists, you know, um, and she talks about what I just mentioned about uh, Samara and this best new artist category. Um, and, you know, there's other ones, the duo of uh, Domi and J.D. Beck, you know, um, who are amazing instrumentalists. And they've really found success on YouTube, you know, by showing off their virtuosity. Um, and they were also included in NPR's uh, Tiny Desk concert, you know. So, you know, Samara Joy, um, she, you know, she won a competition, um, which was quite conventional, conventional, you know, for a traditional jazz singer, but she's also using TikTok and found an audience of younger people out there saying, you know, jazz is a young person's music. Right. It, which is such an interesting concept. But, you know, if you, if you're a young person, you didn't grow up in a household where you had jazz, jazz to you is some, this completely different universe over here off to the side so but again we're back to kind of that 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 challenge for artists it sounds like samara is very um she's very creative in the fact that she's making tiktok videos uh and has found success in that but again we're, we're relying on the artists to do their own marketing and their own outreach and some artists can pull that off some can't and yeah i think we historically have not seen that uh, done very well in the world of jazz, but yeah. I totally tip my hat to Samara. For well, yeah, she's she's young, breaking down the yeah, walls. and she's she's popularizing uh, jazz for a lot of younger people. But if you look at jazz, um, like in other territories, UK, France, Ger- Germany, Italy, Spain, mm-hmm. it there's younger people going to the shows and listening to the music. College kids, they love this stuff. In the U.S., for some reason, when you go to a lot of these festivals and you go to a lot of these clubs, you'll see some college college students from time to time, but most of the audience is older male. And I think artists like you know Kamasi Washington, for example, and Samara and many others, I think they're starting to bring that age down a little bit. It's, yeah. you know, even uh, Kendrick Lamar by 
adding some of those elements into other types of music. Yes, 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 yes. But it is a really good conversation worth watching. And, uh, you know, Anne is super, super sharp. And it's, you know, and she's been around the block for a bit. And, and they, they also mentioned kind of, you know, we forget, uh, and Stephanie brought this up, you know, early in the early days of Spotify, Boy, Radiohead and Taylor <laughs> Swift, and they were just railing on it. Yes. Uh, Tom, they mentioned Tom York, who of course, is the lead singer of Radiohead, said that Spotify was, quote, the last desperate fart of a dying corpse. Oh, man. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, it, it is, there was so much pushback early on, and it, it is- We it forget. Is the beast we know. Yeah, we forget. Um so yeah, I remember uh, that now, changing. right? You know, uh, Ann Power says that I think for the major artists on major labels, it's a lot better than it used to be. Where it really hurts artists is the middle class and emerging artists who now only get fractions of pennies from releases and talk about all that time on other streaming platforms, Twitter, for example. There's been a lot of efforts by artists, whether it's to raise awareness, to try to organize as workers, or now, you know, the Universal Music Group, which we talked about last week in the the deal with title to try to figure out a more equitable model when it comes to, uh, paying artists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is an understatement. It is really hard. And is I think there's a line in the next article we're, we're going to talk about where they say basically, you know, in the, in the, in a, in a good compromise, nobody's really happy. <laughs> I've heard that. And that's a really good statement, right? Yeah, it really is. And I can tell you, in, in, in uh, my another lo- in another thing that I do outside of what we're talking about here in music, but I, I'm involved in sort of a mediation uh, process for some lawsuits, uh, not lawsuits of, of mine, but just it, it's a long story. But anyway, and the the mediator has said kind of the same thing, which is you know, at the end of the day, you may not be happy with this, but it's gonna, but nobody's gonna be terribly happy with it right. but you get to a point where where it's a successful mediation or in this case you know successful. i think that's a good that comparison mike i think that that's what exactly what is going to happen with streaming is the songwriters are not going to get everything that they want uh the dsps aren't going to get everything they want same with the uh you know rights holders but it needs to be improved and to improve it you know that pie is only so large and we're going to have to divvy that thing up um, in just the fairest way possible. And I think this next piece, you know, from music industry blog, um, kind of points to some of these things. Uh, the headline is everyone hurts the problem with quote unquote fixing streaming. And I'll just kick it off with, you know, they talk about the music industry, you know, with global streaming revenues are actually slowing. Um, mm-hmm. that growth is slowing. So despite a strong performance from Spotify, there's growing pressure on rights holders to identify new growth drivers. There's also p- pressure on DSPs as well. That's why they're getting into audiobooks and podcasts and all sorts of things. So this is especially the case for major labels who have new institutional investors and they've become, what is that? acclimatized that's easy for you to say for rapid growth let's go with that sure i don't know man um all of this leads to streaming royalties taking center stage but the problem is that everyone in the streaming ecosystem has problems with the model so can any fix make everyone happy what do you think well jay to quote rem 
Everybody hurts. Uh, as they say, to oversim- to heavily oversimplify, we've talked about, when we talk about streaming, there are three main constituents. There's the creators, obviously songwriters, artists, etc. There are the rights holders, labels, publishers, distributors, CMOs, etc. And there are the streaming services. So those are the three main constituents. Mm-hmm. And then at the start of 2023, guess what? All three have issues with streaming. Songwriters continue to push for higher royalties with long and mid-tail artists uh, and long... Gosh, I'm just marbles in my mouth. <laughs> you me both. And mid-tail artists cannot make streaming economics add up. Uh, publishers continue to lobby for higher rates while UMG is now advocating for a new royalty system. And Spotify just reported a net loss of nearly half a billion dollars for 2022. And then we add in all the perennials, too much music being released, no artist longevity, the commodification of music, listening fragmentation, the decline of superstars. Jay, it makes one's head spin, doesn't it? That's a lot um, right there. In a nutshell, that shows you, you know, everyone who has a stake in this and then what these issues are. And they're not easy issues to, to fix. But I think when you have reasonable people um, at the table, like you and I referenced last week, um, we were having coffee with uh, Garrett Levin from DEMA. If we have more people like Garrett at the table that are just, you know, even handed and can kind of see both sides of the fence, I think we will come up with some solutions, right? None of this is an argument for or against the relative merits, you know, of any case, you know, that the, these three groups have. But it does mean that, you know, any change to the system is going to leave someone unhappy. It goes back to that compromise that you were talking about, Mike. You know, this is the impossible equation that must be balanced. What further complicates matters is this market benefits to different stakeholders can be perceived as negatives to others. And I'll give you a couple examples. Streaming helped democratize the means of production and distribution. Long tail and mid tail artists benefit and superstars lose their share. Okay, that's one. Number two, streaming helped make music the soundtrack of daily routines. Suppliers of mood music, for example, they benefit. Traditional artists and labels lose listening share. And the last one, streaming helped level the playing field, making it easier for smaller labels to compete. Larger labels face stronger competition. Um, so there's this is a very complex sort of issue uh, to kind of unpack. You could, that is an understatement, indeed. Uh, this article points out, though, it's like the debate around, of course, new royalty sort of regimes has been around for a long time. But of course, given uh, Lucian Grange's comments, uh, you know that change is yeah. likely going to come. So, but as we talk about, there is no kind of make everyone happy fix. So here are kind of two pragmatic alternatives. And this is, and I had not seen this one before. This is really interesting. So one f- alternative is what they refer to as the lean forward premium. So one of the mm-hmm. cleanest fixes, they say, would be to create a two-tier royalty system based on the nature of the plays. So lean forward plays would get a higher royalty. That's when a consumer plays from their own collection or seeks out a song to play it. 
Then the other side of that is the lean back play, which would be would generate a lawyer, a lower royalty. That's when a consumer listens to music in an algorithmic radio channel or listens to curated playlists. So they're differentiated. Well, let's talk about that yes, for a second. Yes. You know, first of all, it would be challenging to identify. Uh, not impossible, but challenging to identify across all of these platforms the intent of the listener. Mm-hmm. But putting that aside for a second, um, I hear people talk about this model a lot in that when you buy a concert ticket, you know, Paul McCartney is going to cost more than some artists that you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and shouldn't streaming reflect that too? We've never really done that in the days of retail. It was almost the opposite where the new frontline hit albums were always marked on sale. Discounted. And this is something that my, my dad just, he couldn't wrap his head around. Like, why would you discount the albums that you have the highest demand for? And then some of these developing artists or even catalog things would cost more. Now in streaming, you're paying a monthly subscription. So whether it's like the gym, you know, 3000 people join the gym, but maybe only 30 people actually go. So in this new era, it's so different in that it used to be when we sold an album to a customer, it didn't matter if they played that album a million times or one time, the, the rights holder made the same amount of money uh, for that because it was ownership versus access, right? So now with streaming, it's a different game. And yes, you're paying that monthly subscription, but now we're talking about if your, if your intent is really to seek out uh, music, um, that that would be paid a little bit more. And if you're just leaning back, you know, having it on as background noise, um, and it's you know playing all day, or it's a you know um, a long playlist, that'd be be paid less. And the last thing I'll say on it in this caffeinated rant is that <laughs> I've heard the argument that well maybe you know. Uh, the Beatles should be, you know, uh, a, a premium stream. And then maybe some new developing artist, sh- you know, should be less. Uh, maybe if you're on a free uh, tier, you know, um, as opposed to paid, there's all these different ways of differentiating it, but it, it's a slippery slope and who's to say what's worth more. Yes. Oh, absolutely. The, it, it's all a slippery slope. Um, the next one up they mention is the penny per stream concept, uh, which would be a fixed stream rate, which would effectively mean metered streaming. That's an interesting concept, metered streaming. They say, for example, if every stream generated a penny, a subscriber would be able to listen until their subscription fee was used up with the ability to top up uh, to listener further or upgrade <laughs> to a higher capacity tier. It's kind of like data and all kinds of other things. So this would certainly sure. help drive increased ARPU, something all par- all parties want, but could also de- deter, deter God, I'm just having a hell of a deter, deter some subscribers as it would mean an end to the all-you-can-eat, which they yeah. the, the acronym AYCE, uh, proposition. But maybe it's time for that. Music is not a scalable resource in the way that, say, mobile data is. Every Everyone's song is someone's creation. Also, there would be, there would need to be a solution for free streams. So, an, an interesting concept, you know. And again, an- that's a very interesting concept. I'm, I don't know how I feel about it, but I do know that people like you and I would be punished <laughs> under that. 
because we consume (laughs) more music than the average bear. And those people who, you know, like the gym model that sign up and maybe don't listen to a lot, um, maybe just uh, on their morning commute or when they're working out or making dinner or whatever that is. Um, It's interesting, but I don't want to, you know, crap on any of these ideas. I think it's great to have these conversations. And I hadn't really thought of that. Uh, that model before no. where it's on consumption. Absolutely not. One of the things they point out, though, in the article is don't forget the listener ever. They say, of course, there's a massive missing detail in all of this. The missing stakeholder in the stream economy is the listener. Crucially, though, for all the problems creators and rights holders face, consumers are not complaining in mass. They are content with the proposition that not only represents exceptional value for money, but that also evolves to meet their tastes and behaviors. Streaming's problem are supply-side issues, not demand-side. All industry Hmm. stakeholders should be careful about pushing solutions that could favor the supply-side without proper consideration of the demand-side. The history of business is littered with the corpses of companies that did not properly consider the needs of their customers. Wow. There it is. Yeah. That's it. Wow. Yeah. Great piece. Um, again, this is, uh, it doesn't say who wrote it, uh, unfortunately, but it is from the music industry blog. Um, and it, just a fantastic piece. Uh, everyone hurts the problem with fixing streaming and to kind of, you know, finish up on this, basically the same topic. Um, we have a piece here from, uh, music week, um, with uh, Deezer CEO here, Nemo Foguera. um, Five Big Ideas uh, f- for the Future of Streaming. And this was written by Andre Payne. Yes, indeed. So so he is chatting about some of the same things. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting. He was talking about more creativity and fewer, la- fewer lawyers. <laughs> Wait a minute. It sounds like he's saying, <laughs> yeah, layers or lawyers. Uh, fewer lawyers, Jay, in the music business? Is that even possible? I, I, don't, I don't know if that's possible. Yeah, it's, this, this business is, is steeped in, uh, in lawyers. And, and look, a lot of the executives at a lot of these companies have law degrees. They just, they're not maybe practicing law, yeah. but a lot of the executives that I grew up with um, uh, were lawyers. Um, uh, here, Nemo, go, he says that I never sold music prior to Deezer, but I've always sold emotions and experiences. Um, so I sold love. Um, I sold excitement. Um, I think this refers to his, uh, you know, dating app days. Um, but this is something that we're missing. We're not really selling emotion. We're selling access to a catalog. And that's where I think the mindset has to fundamentally change. It all starts with the artists and the music. We can't forget that this is the source of our industry. And, you know, um, you and I hear this a lot from Merc Mercuriatus, mm-hmm. um, who's shouting from the fruit to- uh, rooftops. Um, and that is that... Without the songwriter, we have no business. Exactly. And, and I like that what he's saying here, you know, that mindset really has to fundamentally change. And he said, change. he said, that is where we're killing the creativity along the way in the industry. He says, I think this is an industry where there are just probably way too many lawyers in between getting in the way of art and innovation. We need to think differently. So he does come from kind of outside of the music industry. And he's saying that this yeah. is kind of helping him sort of challenge everything about this. And... Um, 
And I get I think that's a good yeah, thing. It is a good thing. You know, yeah. To have somebody from the outside looking at it a little differently. And let's let's take a look at some of the things that he's suggesting. The first one is prioritize breaking artists over catalog. Yes. Um, you know, people love listening to music, you know, from their life and their past. That catalog will always be there and will always be valuable. Sometimes it's just really classic music. Even the new audiences will come and discover those old classics. And they're simply awesome. So the catalog has to be, you know, has to play a big part. Um, it'll always be there. It's what people want and will continue to consume. Um, and then you have to think of new music and discovery of new music. And that's where I think the DSPs can do a better job. Right. Helping people discovering new music and helping up and coming artists break through. He says it's now much harder to break through as an artist than ever before. A lot of the consumption mm -hmm. is driven by algorithms and recommendations, and there are fewer promotion capabilities. Media consumption has gone down. So even if you get an interview on the TV, you get less of an audience, and actually the younger audiences are already long gone. And those are the ones that discover new music. Then on, the so then on social media, you need to build your following first. So it's getting harder and harder to break through. That's where DSPs like Deezer can actually play a role to help people discover music even more than we do today. That's something I really would like Deezer to be more active with, the discovery of new music. And that's, I think, an industry-wide wow. problem at the moment is kind of long-term... Um, commitment to artist development everybody talks about it but um yeah. it really it it's time consuming and it can be expensive um but it is the lifeblood yeah. of this business and you know we we always yeah. always always have to focus on artist development and yeah and i like how he's calling that out and th this isn't anything new but it's a lesson we need to learn over and over again and when i worked at universal um uh, I worked for Jim Murray for a time, and it was all about that. In fact, he came up with a slogan that we had. Uh, it was, we stand for artistry and artist development. And it reminded us sort of every day. Um, he also, um, uh, here Nemo also touches on rethinking growth strategy. He says that the, the market penetration can still go higher. We haven't reached the limits yet, uh, neither you know in the UK or US for consumption, but it's true that the growth will slow down naturally. I mean, we're kind of seeing that yeah. now. Um, so now we've, we've got to um, that level of penetration and that level of consumption, but it's not really about growing subscribers. It's more about growing ARPU, average revenue per user. Um, and, uh, I, I think the growth can be massive, but probably it'll be driven more by ARPU than by subscribers. That's where I think everyone needs to change the mindset because basically ARPU has been flat or actually going down because of the family subscription plan effect and so on for years and years. Everyone's focused on penetration and subscribers. So I like the way that Heronimo is looking at all of these different angles, all these different um, issues and focusing on ones that um, I believe are the most important. Absolutely. As he says, I think in these more mature markets, we need to all change the mindset. And it's more about focusing on ARPU and monetization. The moment we do that, then these markets will have so much potential. We can still double or triple the UK or the US in terms of revenue. There's a massive opportunity. We just need to approach it differently and have a different strategy. And he says Deezer has changed prices already in the UK, but the fact that no one actually touched prices for more than 10 years is really unthinkable yeah. in the in pretty much any industry. So that's a 
big chunk where the growth should come from. And we've talked about that a lot. Yeah. For some reason, yeah. the video subscription services think nothing of rising rates and raising raising prices. And uh, and yet, the, the music markets have been just really afraid of, of, of charging. They really have. Yeah. Well, and it's but they're starting to. Yes. We're starting to see yes, some sure. some raises in family plans and and in uh, small changes in monthly rates, uh, subscription rates, and hopefully we'll see that. Look, I don't want to pay any more money than anybody else, but I I think it's the right thing to do. I think that um, it will really help um, to make sure that everybody is paid fairly, and we can. Uh, you know, reach that compromise that no one's going to be happy with. Um, and there's a couple more in here. One is reforming royalty payments. And he said that we continue to be supportive of user centric, right? Uh, or some people call it fan powered. Mm -hmm. and, and Deezer was an early adopter in user centric. And he said that they want to be fair and pay artists fairly. Ultimately, as you know, we don't pay artists, we pay the labels and the labels pay the artists. So effectively, what we need to do is agree with the labels on the payment system. And that's why it's been very difficult because you need to agree with all these different labels. All of them have different agendas and strategies because of the way that the industry works. If you change the payment system, there will always be winners and there will always be losers. It's a zero sum game. So someone will win and someone will lose. And that's why it's been so difficult to implement. Yeah. He says, we haven't given up on user-centric. We're trying to find a way of implementing it. And we're trying to find a way of making it better and fairer so that it actually benefits the right people and gets the support of all the labels, especially the majors, to move forward. We will keep pushing for a change in the remuneration of artists, the way streams are paid for today, the pro rata model, where it's divided up among different rights holders is not efficient. It was a simple and quick way of doing it in the very early days, but now with the data and technology we have, there are many ways where you can pay it in a far more fair and efficient way. That's an important part. You know, it kind of, this kind of came in yeah. in, in early days and sometimes, you know, it, 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 it's something that's easy to implement and then you're just kind of stuck with it. And I think that yeah, is... but there's... Go ahead. Yeah, I, sorry to interrupt yeah, go you. Ahead. I mean, it's, it's also that... We can't agree on even if it's going to be better or not. We covered a story last week about this, and we continue to have very smart people on both sides of that equation say, you know, fan-powered, user-centric is more fair, and um, we think that these types of artists will benefit. And then conversely, on the other side, the, the same thing uh, about uh, pro rata. So I think with what Universal Music is doing um, with Tidal, with the data that we see here you know, from Deezer, I think we are going to get to the bottom of who wins and who loses. Because as you said, with compromise, that's, that's what's going to happen. And, and the last thing on this particular piece is it talks about evolving audio streaming. You know, when you think about music, music is not just audio. Music is video. Music is experiences, going to a concert. Music is much richer than just the audio files themselves. And so that's where he said that that's where we see our product evolving. Also, music is very social, but the way we consume music today through the DSPs is very machine to person. Mm. It's not that social. So yes, you know, you have some collaborative playlists and you share stuff, but it's not social as music should be because music was invented by humans to connect. Music is what brings us together 
It's it's a very social thing by definition, and and we're missing that element. So we're looking on, you know, we're looking into how to bring video experiences, how to bring offline experiences, how to bring social experiences, and that's exactly the direction uh, Deezer is going to be taken. So um, I hadn't really r- read much um, from Mr. Fulguera. Um, I just thought he was just really articulate, very intelligent, mm-hmm. um, and very, you know, like common sense approach to a lot of these issues. Oh yeah, absolutely. So really great collection of, of stories. And, you know, this is really going to be, I think the big, the big, big, big story for 2023, which is, you know, how do we now kind of, you know, we've got to this point and boy, it's, it's, it's been quite successful in general. And, you know, how do we now kind of look back and sort of revise and maybe, again, make some compromises that not everybody is going to be happy about, but will ultimately create a more robust and stable platforms and experience for consumers and all of that stuff. So it's a big job. It is a really big job. But Jay Gilbert, I can't think of anybody more uh, suited to handle that job than you. So (laughs) I'm putting you in charge of the whole mess. (laughs) I'll take care of it this afternoon. Good for you. And by Monday, we can just celebrate the new way that Jay has figured out this business. So uh, Problem solved. Problem solved. Well, on that note, it is time to wrap up the show. If you did enjoy the show, we hopefully, we certainly hope you did. Please tell just one friend. Jay and I would certainly appreciate it. And of course, big thanks to the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town for helping us get the party going. Couldn't do it without you all. And on that note, we are going to head out with another Burt Bacharach tune with uh, his wonderful muse, Dionne Warwick. So we thank you all for listening to the uh, the podcast today. Jay and I will be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Each time we meet, walk on Gone by. Don't stop. Don't walk on by. Don't stop. Don't walk on by.